uh, our text today is one verse, just one. Three short points, no subpoints. Zephaniah 3, verse 9. Before we read it, let's understand the context. They were dark days. Dark days. Good King Hezekiah had long since been buried. The wicked son of Hezekiah, Manasseh, had reigned longer than any other king, north or south. And most of that reign had been evil until God finally brought him to a brokenness late in his reign. His sons, in turn, were wicked. But God raised up a young boy as king, a lad named Josiah. And he had a heart for God. God had changed his heart, and through him, changed his life, and through him, changed the community. But the reforms brought about were still only thin. They were superficial, not from the heart of Josiah. That was real enough. And those who helped him, that was real enough. But superficial for many of the population who went along and made a show of it. But the revival of Josiah's day did not touch the majority of the people of the land, and God had said he would bring judgment, though not in the days of Josiah. It's in that bleak context, what a future to look forward to, knowing that the judgment of God hangs like a sword of Damocles by a thread over the heads of his people. God Send Zephaniah. And Zephaniah's sad duty is to proclaim the coming judgment of the Lord Almighty. And then, then we come to chapter 3, verse 9. Hear God's word. After all of these things, he says, all of these judgments, he says, then will I purify the lips of the peoples that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, instruct our hearts in the midst of the uncertainty of our times. For we too, Lord, are your covenant people because of Jesus and the extension of that loving covenant to embrace us. So give us your vision for us as a congregation, your vision for us as a redeemed people throughout this land and this world in the time in which you have placed us here awaiting the return of the King of Kings. So instruct us this morning by your grace, by your Spirit's work in our hearts and change us for having met here in your presence and heard your voice, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Ragtag players at tryouts for sports teams. We've all seen them. <laughs> they're, 
trying out their walk-ons. Some of them are sandlot, you know, and they're patently unready at that stage for sporting league team competition. Even their greatest singular effort on their own rarely results in standout team play. They need, well, a well-qualified coach, an instructor, an encourager, an organizer to take them to the level they need to attain in order to be competitive. Well, we've seen that in athletics again and again, but how much more is it true that we as God's people need his transforming instruction, and we have that in his word, and his spirit's empowerment to enable us to understand and apply it and carry it out in order to participate in the great cosmic drama of redemptive history. Our text, this little verse, is all about that, you know. It really is. It teaches us this key truth. If you want to write down one sentence, write this one down. God transforms his people for united missional service to him. I'll say it again. If you don't remember anything else, remember this. God transforms his people for united missional service to him. Now let's look and see how and why that's so. There are three reasons I've given them to you in the outline you have in your bulletins. First, that God transforms hearts and lives. That's part of our motto here at Christ Community. Second, that God's transforming grace extends to the nations. And finally, that God's purpose in all of this is to bring together a diverse community united in our worship and service to him. I'd like us to look very briefly at each of those three points. First, God transforms hearts and lives. God is being quoted by the prophet Zephaniah, who speaks for God, speaks God's words. And through Zephaniah, we hear God saying, I, I, Jehovah, the Lord God, the great self-existent I am, the one who delivers from Egypt and slavery, the one who preserves his people, I will purify the lips of the peoples. Now, we think of that as odd today. There are a lot of other things we can think it might need purifying. And in fact, there were many rites of purification under the law of Moses that involved washings and anointings of hands and head and feet, and the whole body. So we may find it peculiarly instructive that God says, I'll purify the lips. You don't find that in Moses. What's it mean? I'll purify your lips. Moses spoke of God's circumcising or changing, purifying our hearts, of the hearts of his people. But why the lips? Well, we have to look back a ways. A century and a half before Zephaniah lived and, and served the Lord and spoke for him, there was another king, Hezekiah, a good king, the last good king before Josiah, great-grandfather, I believe. And Hezekiah, that good king, had carried out also 
reforms. Under him, the land had been invaded by Sennacherib, the great king of the Assyrians, and nothing could stand in his, in his way. He leveled cities of all the nations round about, and all the cities, fortified cities of Judah, the kingdom of Judah as well, came all the way to Jerusalem. Never quite got there. Because he made the mistake of blaspheming God, wrote it in a letter, sent it to Hezekiah, and Hezekiah read that, and said, don't let Hezekiah tell you that Yahweh, the Lord, will deliver you. Where are the gods of this nation? Where are the gods of that nation? Ha, your God won't deliver you. Ooh. Hezekiah took that and spread it out in the temple. He said, Lord, we don't deserve it. But look what your enemies are saying about your name. And for your name's sake, deliver your people. And for his name's sake, God did. And in a single night, his destroying, avenging angel eliminated the entire 186,000-man army of the invading king, Sennacherib. He had to go hopscotching back the way he'd come, where he had still some, some uh, uh, garrisons uh, to protect the way, back to his own land where he was assassinated by two of his own sons. You don't defy the living God. But in his time was a certain other prophet who prophesied. Prophet named Isaiah. Isaiah's own call had taken place. Well, it's recorded for us in the year that King Uzziah died. It's in, it's in uh, Isaiah chapter 6. And he sees God high and lifted up. His train fills the temple. And his response is, as the, as the seraphim, the angels flying back and forth, brilliant in their, in their light and singing, saying rather, holy, 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 thrice holy is Jehovah of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And what's Isaiah's immediate response? He says, woe is me. We say, wait a minute. You have the privilege of seeing God most high in his temple. And you say, woe is me? Yes. Sure do. Until and unless the not small matter of your sin is dealt with. He said, woe is me, for I am undone. I could preach a whole sermon on the word undone in Hebrew. I won't. Don't have time. But, but the, the point is, Isaiah knew his sin. He said, for I am a man of unclean lips. Notice the term. And I dwell amidst a people of unclean lips. They're all no better than I am. And my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Why would that worry him? First off, you know his holiness and your sin. That immediately does it. Secondly, he knew what God had said to Moses when God had come on Mount Sinai and, uh, and in the appearance of the smoke and the are the clouds and the winds and the earthquake, the fire. He had met with Moses there. And he, Moses said, show me your glory. And God said, no man living can behold my face and live. I'm much too holy for that. But he says, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. Later on, we know that cleft is Christ. Cover you there with my hand, and I will cause my goodness to pass by, proclaiming his name. But no man will see my face 
and live. There are a number of incidents of later prophets, including Elijah, who understood that all too well. But here was Isaiah at his call, and he recognizes he's seen the king. He has the problem of his sin. What can be done that his life not be forfeit? Ah, a seraph, an angel flies and with his hand takes tongs from, uh, with uh, a coal from the altar and brings it and applies it to his lips as it were burning away. By its contact with the altar, the coal on the altar, which consumed the gift on the altar, that is to say, the sacrifice whose death took the place and was a substitute for the sinner's own. And his lips are clean. And he hears God say, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? The angel had just said, See, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is forgiven and your sin is cleansed. And now he hears God say, Who will go for us? And Isaiah willingly says, Behold, Hineni, here I am. Behold me. Send me. The first response of one whose lips are changed is, Send me. Is it yours? For Zephaniah, he understands that God is not just going to choose an Isaiah for this experience. God's going to do this for all his people, indeed all the peoples. Notice the plural. It's not just all my people, it's all the peoples. Why would the peoples need it? Well, peoples, the Gentiles, are also lost as much as Israel is without their Savior. It was the second great calamity for mankind, the second great judgment on the whole earth. The first was under Noah, the great uh, deluge, the cataclysm, worldwide mabul or storm, terrible, global. And God, as it were, began anew with eight souls, eight people. In the ark, which the writer of Hebrews tells us is, or the writer of First uh, Peter, you know, so Peter tells us it's Christ. That ark is Christ. It absorbs the punishment, and we are kept safe within Him. The second great calamity is that of Babel, a few chapters after the account of Noah. And in it, we read, "No, no, no, not the origin of languages." Languages have been there. Not the origin of differences of languages. Chapter 10 tells us they were already spreading out, but they maintained a central capital and they wanted to stop spreading out, although God had commanded it. But they shared a single safa, lip, and a core vocabulary. The only, only one of three times when the Hebrew puts the... the uh, uh, word echal, one, together with a plural noun. <laughs> Davri echal, one words, huh? Yeah, it violates the normal expected. God isn't violating mixed language, but it violates our expectations of the grammar. It's a core vocabulary. A common speech, core vocabulary. People also had others they could talk about, you know, uh, um, theologians talk in their terms, you know, back and forth. They can still talk to their three-year-old grandchild. 
a medical doctor talks with his, uh, uh, his uh, medical doctor wife, perhaps, and they have little children, or they have neighbors next door. They can communicate. They have a shared, a core vocabulary, a common speech. They had that then. What the judgment was, God took away. Took away understanding, you see, and left behind conflict. Comprehension was removed, and conflict resulted. And in Acts chapter 2, what you find is not the removal of all that in the sense that it's a reversal from one language to many languages at Babel, oh, all the way back to one language again in Pentecost. No, after the ascended Christ, having uh, given his life for his people on the cross to satisfy God's justice against our sins and having raised, been raised again the third day and ascended into heaven, he now pours out his spirit upon his church. And there are people from all over the Roman world and beyond gathered for one, that Passover meal, it was, uh, or Pentecost meal, rather. Pentecost uh, was one of three great uh, annual meetings, the convocations where all the, the adult males, at least, of Israel were required to come to the temple. And uh, there were people from all over the world there, people who had different languages and couldn't understand the Aramaic they spoke. And what did they hear? They heard the gospel. How do they hear it? In their own language. Their own language. What was restored? Unity of comprehension and of purpose and of understanding. See, God's plan always was for diversity. That's not the issue. But a diversity in unity and harmony of loving service for our Creator. And it's not Less that way today. But why the tongue? James chapter 3, we read these words. Uh, verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. Verse 7, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. It goes on explaining that. So, you see, the tongue and the lips represent our expression. Now, I realize that it's possible to write things down and to read it without speaking aloud. I realize that, that sign language allows people who are, are uh, 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 either hearing impaired or for other reasons can't communicate, to be able to do so. There are lots of ways, but normally our communication is through language and much of our language, especially in oral societies, that's hearing-based, is oral, that is mouth, uh, through the mouth. And it was so in the time of Zephaniah. James talks about a rudder on a ship, moving a vessel. Listen, I've been on some pretty large size vessels at sea. A rudder takes time to have effect. Understand that? You have to have steering way for the rudder to have an effect, but even then it takes time. So Christian growth and holiness, sanctification, is ingressive. That is, it, it begins and keeps 
growing and growing until the day we're with Jesus. It may be less immediately perceptible, but it will eventually become prominently observable. We need to be disciplined ourselves and yet patient with others. At the same time, encouraging them toward growth in holiness, which is Christ-likeness. So we need to be clear in our standards, have patience with one another, exercise self-control with respect to our own speech and conduct, and those are all harm, hallmarks of a congregation in which the Spirit of Christ is manifestly at work. He uses our efforts, but it's not because of our efforts. He works in us powerfully, the Apostle Paul says. We work because of that. God transforms hearts and lives. His transforming grace extends to the nations, the peoples, plural. Verse 10, he talks about Cush, that's Ethiopia. You know, at least along the Fertile Crescent, you may go as far, but those nations were known. You had some kind of, of interactions with them, but... Ethiopia, that's about as far off the map as you would get. Very different in language, very different in ethnicity, very, very distant in geography, especially because the roadways were hard. And yet, it's Cush from whence God brings an official in the time of Philip, the evangelist, in Acts chapter 8. We're told he'd just been to Jerusalem to worship. And he was on his way by a desert road to Gaza. Why Gaza? Because from there he would go on through Egypt and down beyond southward toward Ethiopia. He'd been there to worship, but we're told he's not only a high official, he's in his chariot, but and that he'd been there to worship the Lord at Jerusalem, but we're told he was a eunuch. Now, under the law of Moses, to be a eunuch was to be symbolically cut off from the people of God. That was a disqualifying condition, just like leprosy. You couldn't get in to the tabernacle and later the temple. You weren't allowed it represented symbolically sin. Doesn't mean that every single person was a greater sinner than someone else. Jesus came and he healed lepers. But Isaiah prophesied about that. And here's this, this official, and he's riding in his chariot, and Philip is brought by by God to come alongside and listen to him, and he's reading what? The 53rd chapter of Isaiah, the last of the great servant hymns of the book of prophecy of Isaiah, in which he talks about Jesus as a lamb going to the slaughter for his people, and God laying upon him the iniquity of all of us as his people, all his own. Philip says, do you understand what you read? How can I unless someone comes up and explains it to me? Is he talking about himself or someone else? Of course, Isaiah is writing about the coming of Jesus. But why would that 
that Ethiopian eunuch had been reading Isaiah 53 because it's the immediate prelude to 56. 53 and 54 of a eunuch and 55 and 56 follow in 56. God says these words <clears throat> beginning in verse 3. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord, say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let not any eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting, everlasting name that will not be cut off. And he goes on to talk about the same thing for, for the Gentiles. And then he says, um, these I will bring to my holy mountain, verse 7, and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. God has a mind and a heart for the nations. He always has, and he does today. And that unit could see it. He could understand, God has a place for me inside the walls I'm not allowed into. He's going to write my name and the name of my destiny on the walls, inside the walls of the temple of God. And who was the temple? It represented the presence of God, but who represents the presence of God above all? Ah, John's Gospel, chapter 1. We're told that Jesus was born and he, he tented for a while, tabernacled for a while among we beheld his glory, Shekinah dwelling glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Here, my friends, is the temple. And Jesus could cry out as he cleansed the temple twice at the beginning and close of his public ministry. He could say to those who were doing business there and excluding the temple, the Gentiles, even from the court of the Gentiles, where they could have otherwise come just outside and witnessed the sacrifices and the hymns of Zion. And he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of thieves right from this passage in Isaiah chapter 56. So Philip explained the gospel that you can't earn salvation and nothing you have done can disqualify you from it if God extends it to you and you simply by faith based on his grace receive his free gift. Don't try to add any of your works to it qualify you. We live our lives in a, in a, in a, a lived-out thank-you note to God. We want, to, we want to mirror him because we admire and love him. We want to honor and to please him, but we never expect that that's going to add one tiny bit to what God has done for us in Jesus.
God has a heart for the nations and for the marginalized. Finally, God's purpose is to bring together a diverse community, united in their worship and service to Him. We read that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve Him shoulder to shoulder, literally with one shoulder. They'll call on the name of the Lord. And so Peter, at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, quotes from Joel, who says these very same things. Peter's sermon at Pentecost clearly set forth the gospel, but it also set in motion the challenges that a rapid change in ethnic diversity would bring upon the fledgling church. And that happened a few chapters later in Acts chapter 6. Redeemer Church in Jackson, Mississippi was the first, as far as I know, intentionally multi-ethnic Presbyterian congregation in Mississippi's history. But the road has not been easy. It has, however, been worth it. And so it will be for us here, I believe, at Christ Community as we seek to reach the increasingly diverse population of North Cobb County. Changed hearts, changed lives, changed community in North Cobb County and beyond. May God write his word and his vision on our hearts today. Heavenly Father, would you help us see through your eyes? And helping us see it through your eyes, may we both see our community and ourselves through your eyes. That the world may know that there is a God in Israel, a Redeemer. For it's in his name we pray.